0: This is 15 Minute History, a podcast for educators, students, and history buffs featuring the minds and talents of the University of Texas at Austin. 15 Minute History is a partnership of not even past and hemispheres in the College of Liberal Arts at UT Austin. Welcome back. I'm your host, Christopher Rose, with the Department of History. My guest in the studio today is Dr. Lydia Pine, who is an independent investigator. She's also affiliated with UT's Institute for Historical Studies. And today we're going to be taking our leave from her most recent book, Seven Skeletons, the Evolution of the World's Most Famous Human Fossils. Dr. Pine, welcome to the studio. Thanks. It's fantastic to be here. The the title of your book, I think, kind of sets up the discussion we're going to have today, which is famous fossils. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, there's celebrity historians and celebrity, well, celebrities throughout history. But um, in this case, I, I know one of the ones you look at is Lucy, who is arguably the world's most famous skeleton.
1: Absolutely. I think that it's hard to find a fossil... Um, or an artifact in that sense for prehistory that you would find a more famous example than Lucy. Lucy really is the cultural yardstick by which we measure all other all other fossils.
0: So, what is it like as as a historian? And you, you you also have a degree in anthropology, but studying the history of an object as opposed to you know, I, I think most uh, historians, a lot of historians work on concepts or people or movements. But this is, you're looking at an object which is pretty static and yet it probably isn't as static as it would seem is it
1: exactly and that that theme right there is one of the one of the major things that i wanted to explore in seven skeletons um i had these are famous fossils that that we know sort of through examples in anthropology classes or references in popular media and i think a lot of the time we end up with a very it seems like a very straightforward study a story a fossil is discovered it's studied and then it's put in a museum and what i really wanted to understand was what are all of the smaller stories what are what is the life history of a fossil that gets strung together amid all of these these sort of major points along the fossil's life and so very much i think that the The idea that celebrity fossils and famous fossils have these kind of history was uh, was very much the underpinning of what I wanted to do with seven
0: skeletons. So how did you go about sort of constructing this history of object?
1: Sure. I, one of the things that I was really committed to in the project was looking at a variety of sources. I knew that I wanted to spend time in museum archives, and that certainly makes sense for some of the older specimens, uh, like the Piltdown Man hoax or um, the Old Man of La Chapelle, the Neanderthal that was discovered at the beginning of the 20th century, and as well as the Tong Child from South Africa. Um, so I spent some time in the archives at the University of the Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Um, and so I knew that there would be an archival component to this. But a lot of these fossils that I talk about are also much more recent. And so their archival record is a a lot more abbreviated than Mm -hmm. what we would see with some of these other fossils. And so with that, I would go through a media presentation of the fossil. How is it talked about in its media life? Uh, How is it photographed? How are the scientists that discovered it, how are they interviewed? What kind of books do they go on to write about these fossils? Sort of what's the fossil's social life? And so coming at it from that perspective, I feel like there were a lot of other sort of bits and pieces of material culture that end up sort of telling these stories of these famous fossils beyond just the archives.
0: What is it that makes a particular object famous? There have been a lot of... I think
1: that's the question of the hour, Uh, Right.
0: (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, they're they're finding dinosaurs and and old birds. And, you know, uh, the dinosaurs in the books today don't look like the dinosaurs in the books when I was a kid. Right. But, you know, they don't capture the imagination quite... I can't imagine... I don't even know what they're called anymore. The big new big dinosaur doing a world tour quite the way Lucy did a few years ago. Mm -hmm. So what what really makes something significant? Or or have you managed to sort of put together a Guess or an idea about that?
1: I mean, sort of, I think at the high level, what makes something famous is its context. Sort of, when is it discovered? Who discovers it? What questions, what scientific questions can it answer right then and there? And then, sort of, whether it gets, I think, folded into popular imagination um, in ways that are very difficult to predict or to anticipate or to manufacture. And so, I think it's sort of ne- I think that in order for a fossil hominid to become famous, I think it needs to. To sort of meet that that balancing point of being folded into culture as well as having uh, value in scientific
0: circles. Um, I'm gonna harp on Lucy again. No, that's fantastic. <laughs> it's great. Um, because you know, as you mentioned, the context, um, which. Uh, she was discovered by the Leakeys, who themselves were. Please tell me I'm correct about actually, that. Actually, she
1: was discovered by Donald Johanson.
0: Okay, then let's just take that question out. That's
1: fine, but it actually is kind of an interesting question. Okay. Um, that that sort of Johanson found Lucy very on in his career, actually in the very early stages of of his paleoanthropology career, and I think that it definitely sort of catapulted his career in a way that other brilliant kinds of studies wouldn't have, that you have this fantastic thing that people can identify with and people can point to, you're the guy that found Lucy. And suddenly that defines, I think, a scientific career in ways that, that other kinds of laboratory based careers are going to be very different. And so I think that your question of sort of what does it do for the career of the discoverer, I think by and large, it's demonstrable that it catapults, that it catapults a scientist's career.
0: How did she get her name? I just have to ask.
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, so she got her name from the Beatles song, Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, um, uh-huh. that in Johansson's memoir, he writes that it was playing at camp the night they brought the, the fossil back. And so she was christened Lucy after the Beatles song.
0: Um, so uh, another one, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll get off Lucy for a second, that, that you talk about in your book is is the Tong Child, which has a very dramatic story of the discovery. Uh-huh. Did that also lead to the well, I mean, first off, can you sort of relate the story? And then, light? does this high adventure then proceed to translate into celebrity?
1: That's a really good question, especially sort of juxtaposed with Lucy there. So, uh, the story of finding Dart, Raymond Dart finding the Tong Child um, in South Africa is one of these that's almost apocryphal in paleoanthropology. Um, and as Dart tells it in his autobiography, that he has asked the Limeworks mine that's nearby where he's teaching in Johannesburg to send him interesting fossils. And so one of these crates of fossils arrives... Um, while he and his wife are hosting a wedding, uh, getting ready to host a wedding. And so Dart, being the curious scientist that he is, starts rummaging through the box and finds the first part of the Tongchild fossil, this amazing uh, fossilization of a brain. Actually, it's called an endocast. Um, And so Dart finds this, and he's absolutely just caught up in this brilliant moment of, I think he describes it actually as, was I going to be Darwin's, the the instrument in Darwin's hand to bring human origin research back to Africa. And his wife, you know, sort of breaks into his reverie and sort of, you know, shakes him and says, we have to, we have to, you know, get back to the to the wedding, and the bridegroom rushes in and says, "You know, if you're not going to be the best man, I have to go find a new best man. I mean, you've got you've got to kind of pull it together here."
0: So uh, we, now we have an image of him in his tuxedo exactly. rummaging it's through, yeah, this full Edwardian okay.
1: dress, this full Edwardian formal dress, sort of right. rummaging through. Um, and then uh, after 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 all is said and done, he finds the other parts of the tongue child. There's a mandible, there's part of the face, and then the brain cast as well, um, and puts it back. Together. And then he actually um, dashes off a publication to Nature fairly quickly, about 40 days after um, he's actually sort of freed the fossil from its limestone matrix, which is incredibly fast uh, for that kind of uh, paper, that kind of description. Of a fossil's uh, anatomy, and he sort of meets with a lot of pushback from the scientific establishment because he describes this tongchild child fossil, which he puts into the species Australopithecus africanus. He puts this this he creates a new species first of all, and then he puts this new species as an ancestor to Homo sapiens. And the scientific establishment kind of pushes back about this um, and says that it doesn't meet a lot of the criteria that they thought a human ancestor should have. They thought that the human ancestor should have a bigger brain than the Tong child did and the lots of lots of other anatomical characteristics. Um, and so Dart actually doesn't sort of become immediately the scientific celebrity that some of the other uh, late 20th century and even 21st century fossil discoverers do enjoy. That, Dart's, uh, that Dart sort of takes several decades for his fossil discovery to become rehabilitated um, into the scientific establishment.
0: It's interesting that you you mentioned rehabilitation because one of the things I'm thinking about is, for example, how they tell you in your first history methods seminar that history is the study of change. And I'm 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 thinking particularly as you just mentioned um, this fossil, thinking about what it meant changed over time. Is this mm-hmm. something common that you've seen? And I mean, you look at seven skeletons, so you know was this mm-hmm. was this a common theme as you were going through these these objects that that people were reinterpreting them in different ways?
1: I think that that is absolutely true. Um, for some of the more recent ones, I don't think that we've seen the kind of drastic shifts yet of um, change. For example, the Tong child, it's sort of obscure, then it becomes this fantastic example, this case study, um, the type specimen of the species to to talk about early bipedalism in Africa, human origins uh, in Africa. And then other fossils like the Piltdown Man hoax, well, what was once thought to be a fossil is actually shown to to not be a fossil at all. Um, and so definitely the interpretations of that are going to change. Um, it's not going to be in the, the family tree anymore. Um, other specimens like the old man of La Chapelle, which is a Neanderthal that was discovered in France in the beginning of the 20th century, um, when it was originally described and sort of put out there to museums and to the popular culture, Um, There was very much this sort of knuckle-dragging, troglodyte stereotype that we sort of think of with the Neanderthal. And that original interpretation of the Neanderthals is very much where that comes from. And so I think that certainly the Neanderthal, more than any other of the species that I talk about or any of the other specimens that I talk about, is certainly one that has seen the most rehabilitation or the most reimagining or the most sort of reengagement that maybe um, as context, as the social contexts for these different fossils change, um, certainly what they what they are going to be is going to change. But what I find so interesting is that we keep going back to these same fossils uh, mm-hmm. with these reinterpretations and these reimaginings, that they're, they sort of serve as these cultural touchstones that we keep wanting to go back. Um, and as the stories change, we still go back to these, these sort of familiar characters.
0: Out of curiosity, of the seven, do you have a favorite?
1: <laughs> um, that's a great question, actually. I think that I became really partial to the Tong child um, during the time that I spent in South Africa uh, going through the Raymond Dart archive. I felt like I got to know the fossil um, more than I got to know some of the other fossils. Um, and so it feels it feels like there's this personal connection. And I it felt almost like that was very much at the heart of of some of the point of Seven Skeletons was that these are fossils that we form connections to. People mm-hmm. have heard of Lucy. People have maybe heard of The Hobbit. Um, they, the the Piltdown hoax is one of the most famous in the history of science. And so I think that people sort of form connections to these fossils through the stories that they know about them. And so I felt like forming these kind of connections to the Tong child through the archives was very much in the spirit of the book.
0: Was there anything that surprised you as you were going through this? These are seven pretty well-known specimens, but was there anything that just sort of made you step back and and reassess or or really surprised you as you were doing your research?
1: One of the things that I didn't expect, one of the directions for research that i didn't expect to go down was to look at the history of how these specimens had been displayed in museums
0: oh interesting
1: and to sort of see how these specimens lived their museum display lives so incredibly different so neanderthals that are put into the chicago museum in the sort of early to mid 20th century are going to be very are going to be and to look and to create very different narratives than the neanderthals that we see today in the american museum of natural history or the Smithsonian Institute, and so looking at old photographs looking at old reconstructions, um, old imaginings of these particular skeletons was a really unexpectedly cool aspect of the of the story and to sort of see how we keep reimagining what these what these characters look like and how they would have behaved, um, I think adds a very sort of humanizing dimension to these skeletons.
0: I think that that also probably has a lot to do with it. Museum studies is a whole different field, but exactly. Um, uh, well, I, w- I was at the American uh, Museum of Natural History um, recently, and you know, Lucy um, is literally in the middle. You could actually walk right by her if you don't know she's there. <laughs> um, you know, she, uh, of this multimedia, they've got uh, you know exhibition. They've got you know holograms and. And AV and 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 touch this and, and two floors below it, um, is an anthropological exhibit on Africa where they're talking about the the, the recent finds of. Negro uh, skeletons in Rhodesia, and um, you know, so it was it, to me, it was it was just a really stark contrast because I think also with the excitement goes uh, a lot of, of of the funding and and the, the modern scholarship and uh, you know it was one of those things where I mean this thing is clear you know clearly from a time when. Number one you you could describe peoples as as Negroes and number two you know Rhodesia was still a country so we're looking at least the right. mid 1950s or 1970s um and it was it was just really fascinating to sort of follow um that that sort of trajectory, as, even as you move through a museum as, as to what gets updated and and what what remains very static
1: that's I think that that's a really interesting point and certainly um I think that these these seven skeletons have definitely been um, sort of tipping points or trajectories for different researchers being able to pursue different additional field work. That Lucy has very much been able to propel um, interest in field work in Ethiopia um, mm-hmm. and other other big specimens, other big finds that I don't talk about in the book have certainly served similar functions along the Rift Valley in East Africa. Um, and so I think that there very much is this sense that the the celebrity object, the thing that can sort of captivate imagination, is going to sort of trade in cultural cachet, whether it intends to or not. Yeah. It sort of does, and I think that that's really interesting.
0: It's fascinating. Um, I mean, we could we could go on and on, but I, <laughs> I'm looking at the clock and seeing we're, we're right about at our time. But I want to thank you so much for being with us and. Good thank luck you. with the book. Well, thank you. And uh, this has been another episode of 15-Minute History. We'll see you next time. For a transcript of this episode, images, and links to more information, visit our website at 15minutehistory.org. That's the numerals five minutehistoryorg You can access our full catalog of episodes free of charge at our website and through the iTunes U app for iOS or the Tunes Viewer app for Android. You can also access the 10 most recent episodes through the Apple Podcasts app, Google Play Podcasts, Stitcher, and Overcast. 15-Minute History is produced in partnership between Not Even Past and the Hemisphere's Outreach Consortium. Our executive editor is Joan Newberger, and our technical editor is Christopher Rose. Our audio engineers are the awesome folks in the liberal arts instructional technology services, Jacob Weiss, Morgan Honaker, Will Kurtzner, Samantha Skinner, and Michael Heidenreich. Special thanks also to Michael DeLeon, iTunes U site administrator with Project 2021 and educational innovation. The University of Texas at Austin is a free speech campus. Opinions and viewpoints expressed in episodes of 15-Minute History do not represent the official position of the University of Texas or of any of its colleges or departments. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.